I've given you enough time to flip over to the first chapter of Genesis. If not, you can turn there now. If you would, stand with us. Uh, We'll read Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 tonight. We're going to look at verse 26 and 27 together. This is the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And this is God's word. He's preserved it so we could read it together. Let's go to him in prayer, thanking him for it, and ready to hear what he has for us tonight. Father, we come to you again tonight, thankful for the opportunity we have to gather together, consider your word together. Think of our friends that couldn't be here tonight, some work, some school-related things keeping them away. We ask that you would watch over them. Bring them back on uh, this coming Lord's Day for us to consider the word again together. Father, we uh, turn our attention to our last cult tonight, um, one that is probably far more rampant in our country than most people in here are aware of. So help me tonight to be gracious and kind, but speak the truth in love. And Father, we think of our friends around the city preaching the gospel and um, burden for some especially congregations around our city that don't have pastors right now. They're looking for pastors. Think of our friends at Calvary Baptist and Republic searching for a pastor. Think of our friends at Macedonia Baptist Church also seeking a pastor. And Father, we know that your hand is over all things and in all things. We know that you are sovereign. And so when a church that tends to not preach the gospel comes open, We ask that you would bring a a, a gospel-preaching pastor to one of our more liberal churches in our city, Father. And you know who they are, and it's not necessary for us to call them out by name. But we ask that you would move and and work in that situation, and you'd allow our city to be transformed by the gospel. So be with us now as we turn our attention to uh, this particular cult. Thank you for your word, and thank you for its sufficiency. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As I prepare to teach this sermon, probably more than any other cult, this is one particular group that I've been nervous to talk about. You may ask the question why, and I think it's because they get lumped in with groups that they are close to theologically and give others a bad name. Uh, Oneness Pentecostals are a branch off of what you might call traditional Pentecostals, but in reality, traditional Pentecostals tend to be Oneness Pentecostals. Probably the most damaging thing that happens as a result of what oneness Pentecostals believe is they're often lumped in with assemblies of God because we think Pentecostals, we think Pentecostalism, we think uh, that's what the assemblies of God are, and they are not the same thing. And I want to be kind to our assemblies of God friends in the city. I want to make sure that we protect where we agree and call out where we disagree. Uh, but assemblies of God and oneness Pentecostals are assemblies of God and Pentecostals are not the same thing. They are believe they don't believe the same things. They may come close at times to being within a shade of each other on certain theological issues, but to be a oneness Pentecostal is not to be an assembly of God. And far too often, people will throw them, lump them in together. Um, 
Oneness Pentecostals are known best through the group, the United Pentecostal Church International, which ironically, its headquarters are in the St. Louis, Missouri area. I don't know what it is about the state of Missouri, um, but prior to this series, I did not realize how many different cults have passed through this particular state. You think of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, and others have made stops along the way in the state of Missouri. So I don't know what it is about Missouri that attracts them, but they're here. Um, it would be worth noting that in 1915 and 1960, 1916, respectively, the third and fourth general council of the Assemblies of God distinguished themselves from Oneness Pentecostals. In fact, their stand against Oneness Pentecostals led to Oneness Pentecostals starting their own group. So praise be to God that our Assemblies of God brothers and sisters did not allow uh, that particular line of theology to continue to infiltrate their group. Uh, Assemblies of God traditionally affirm an orthodox understanding of the Trinity and to a certain degree, depending on which people you're talking to, right? Just like we don't want to be lumped in with Westboro Baptist or uh, the Stephen Anderson groups in Phoenix, uh, we need to be careful how we talk about people who differ in theology from us. And our Assemblies of God friends, for the most part, I would be comfortable calling them friends because they do affirm uh, gospel salvation. They do believe in the Trinity. And we'll talk a little bit more, and I'll make a little bit bigger of a clarifying statement later tonight. So, to Orthodox, Presby or Orthodox Presbyterians, they're way different than Oneness Pentecostals. Um, to Oneness Pentecostals, we now turn, and we're going to look at three distinguishing marks of what it means to be a Oneness Pentecostal. And they're all going to start with the first letter S. I'm very happy to have alliterated this outline for you this evening, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed writing it. The first one we're going to look at is the idea of a Savior. And this is why we turn to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Oneness Pentecostals teach that Jesus is the one true God. Jesus is God in totality and operates in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at different times, in different modes, in different operations. Now, if you are wondering, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've heard this before. This is modalism. Yes, you've been paying attention and taking notes on our different talks on the Trinity. And you're like, David, why can't we ever seem to escape this idea of the Trinity? Well, because primarily one of the quickest ways to identify a cult is to say, what do you believe about the Trinity? And when they deny it, there's a pretty good chance you're in a cult. So just in case you were ever leaning that direction, you can ask, what do you believe about the Trinity? They deny the Trinity. They're modalists. They fully deny any concept of the Trinity. They would not try and church it up. Jesus is the one true God, and he operates in different modes, Father, Son, and Spirit. So one time he's operating as Father, other time he's operating as Son, other time he's operating as Spirit. But Jesus is all three of those things, just kind of changing. He's like a quick change artist. If you think I'm being rude or harsh, you can go to uh, the UPCI website, and it's there. Like, I've tried the best of my ability with all of these cults to be as transparent with you and go to what they have to say and what they claim. I'm not making this stuff up. They have websites and everything. Furthermore, the uh, Oneness Pentecostals argue, and this is what is really dangerous, 
and I would say a blind spot, big time. Oneness Pentecostals argue that the Trinity is rooted in paganism, and by rejecting the, the, the pagan idea of the Trinity, um, they are basically renewing the faith. They're basically like Martin Luther in 1531, which, by the way, that's what tomorrow is about, not dressing up. Anyway, that's another sermon for another time. Friends, all throughout church history, and, and this is why not, right, everybody goes, well, Ronald Reagan said those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat themselves. That's what we like to say about American history. I'd like to say that the reason why so many cults exist in our world around us is because nobody bothers to figure out what everybody believed 50 years before themselves or 100 years before themselves. A straight line exists in Christianity going all the way back to the apostles and Jesus of the affirmation of the Trinity. We got together in groups. We, we talked about this on Sunday. And I, I, you say, David, why are you belaboring this point? Because if nothing else, I want for you at Christmas time to be able to tell your friends and family, if they ask you, what have you learned this semester at church? You could tell them in AD 325, a council got together in Nicaea and they determined together at that particular council that Jesus is fully and truly God, that the, the Father is fully and truly God, and the Spirit is fully and truly God, and that we have from AD 325 onward have been fighting the same battle to reject this idea that Jesus is not part of the Trinity or the Trinity doesn't exist. You're like, wow, that's a really intense college ministry. They're like, you should meet our pastor. I'm sorry, maybe I'm at the end of my rope. I've been doing this week after week. I've been telling my small group, this is the hardest sermon series I've ever done in my entire life because every week you send me to my study and I've got to read about people who deny what the Bible has to say. Basically the equivalent of strapping me to my chair and making me watch Cubs games for the rest of my life. Just take me home, Lord. It'd be better to be at, never mind, I'm going to stop going down that line. Friends, the Bible clearly teaches and affirms the Trinity much beyond just church history. I don't care what a bunch of stuffy historians have to say. Ultimately, I think they're a good evidence. We want They're a good witness. We want to call them to the stand, but they're not the ultimate authority either. As much as I love Athanasius, as much as I love the original St. Nicholas punching Arius at the Council of Nicaea in 325, as much as I love all of those brothers, their testimony ultimately pales in comparison to what the Bible has to say. So real quick, to remind us again, the Trinity is articulated as one God expressing himself in three persons. For the note takers in the room, the Father is God. We read that in 1 Peter 1, 2. The Son is God. John 20, 28 teaches us clearly. The Spirit is fully and truly God. Acts 5 affirms this as well. You may say, David, okay, we've heard this so many times. We get it, the Trinity, the Trinity, the Trinity. Well, I would, I would just ask you this tonight. What do you believe about who Jesus is? Danny Aiken once said, the two most important things that you will ever, the two most important questions you will ever answer in your entire life are, what do you believe about Jesus and what do you believe about the Bible? And if you believe that Jesus is one true God who exists in different modes at different times, Friends, you've got major, major problems with your theology because you've got somebody hanging on a cross that is simultaneously dying for the sins of the world while simultaneously pouring out the wrath of the Father on the Son. He cannot be in two places at one time. 
doing both of those things to himself. It is physically and logically impossible. And you have no sufficient savior because somebody's got to pour the wrath out and somebody's got to take the wrath on themselves. And if you don't have a substitutionary atoning person, someone to take your sins for you, you have no savior. Cults aren't dangerous because you end up in a Holiday Inn Express next to the airport with a shaved head and a Hawaiian shirt. Cults are dangerous because they lead you to hell because they deny the reality of who Jesus is. But even worse than that is knowing all about Jesus and not actually knowing him. I shared this with my apologetic students this morning. I personally find people who don't know what they're talking about incredibly frustrating, which is why I try to, as best as I can, to be well-researched about what particular texts of scriptures I'm speaking on. But last night, if you watched uh, Game 6 of the World Series and listened to Joe Buck break down a particular play, it was apparent in that moment that Joe Buck, despite his years of being involved in baseball, despite sitting at games, watching games, in spite of everything that had happened, know absolutely nothing about what he's talking about. And so, in fact, some of you are like, who's Joe Buck? You would be just as qualified to talk about the play that he talked about last night. What he illustrated so clearly to me in that moment is that broadcasters can spend their entire life around a sport yet not actually know how to apply it, which is what is, makes me so scared as your pastor, that you can be around Christianity your entire life and still not know how to apply it. It's still not be true. It's still not be sunk in. It's still not be grasped. It's, it's something you do rather than something you own. Because I, I say to myself in my study, why would I teach this again? We've been talking about this. We're going to talk about Jesus on Sunday. Why? Because there are still people who don't get it. And just because I get it doesn't mean you've gotten it. So do you live in light of what you believe? Have you actually taken hold of this? Talked to a parent this week. Students struggling. I just told them, like, this is typical in college. You guys have to take ownership of everything you've claimed to really believe since you were real little. Especially if you've grown up in church. There's got to come a point in a time in your life where this becomes real. Not just something I've learned about, but it's mine. I own it. I am a Christ follower. So we look first at Savior. What did one of Pentecostals believe about the Savior? So in light of what they believe about the Savior, then we have to ask ourselves, what do they believe about salvation? Flip over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We've got to ask this question of any particular people group. We must think about what must I do to be saved? That is the most important question that any person can ask. What must I do to be saved? Well, according to Oneness Pentecostals, you make your way over to Ephesians chapter 2. Salvation comes through faith. You're like, okay, sounds good. Repentance, two for two. 
This is where it becomes troubling. Baptism in the name of Jesus only and speaking in tongues. Now, again, I want to make a clear distinction here. Assemblies of God believe that tongues are in operation but are not necessary for salvation. Oneness Pentecostals believe if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not saved. Don't confuse them. I'm going to go to bat for my assemblies, friends. I'll take them to the mat later on the stuff that we disagree with. But this is where Baptists a lot of times get themselves into trouble because they start taking shots at assemblies people about they believe that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved. That's not true. Oneness Pentecostals do believe that. I think most troubling in both of these or in this salvation order is this idea that your baptism contributes something to your salvation and speaking in tongues does as well. Friends, baptism is an ordinance given to the church. It is a visible sign to a group of gathered believers reflecting reflecting an image of an inward change. It's an outward sign of an inward change. You are publicly demonstrating that you have changed inwardly. Baptism contributes nothing to your salvation. What it does do, though, is it signifies to a group of people that you are testifying that your life has been changed and you desire to be with that particular group of believers. Speaking in tongues, nowhere in the New Testament is given as a prescription for conversion. I, I would think, if I had not had this experience in my life, that this no genuine oneness Pentecostal would really hang their hat here. About five years ago, I was sitting in an office with Jared Bumpers, our former student pastor, with two college students that were thinking about getting married. She, a Baptist, he, a oneness Pentecostal. And they had gone round and round and round about what they believed and were about to get engaged and get married. And they couldn't land on the fact that it was very apparent that they did not believe the same thing. So Jared invited me to sit in on this counseling session. He said, I think this will be good for you to learn. It was very early on in my time as a college pastor. So I'm like, hey, I like watching discussions anyway. This will be great. And So we went in, and they went round and round over everything and over every hill and every mountain. And I'm like, good night, nurse. Get Like, let's cut to the chase. And if you know Jared Bumpers, you know that that's his mentality as well. And so finally, we just got to this place about halfway through our time together where Jared looked at the guy and said, as a oneness Pentecostal, you believe that speaking in tongues is a necessary sign of conversion. Yes. You've spoken in tongues. Yes. Do you believe you're genuinely converted? Yes. Jared turned to the girl and said, you're not a oneness Pentecostal. No. You don't believe that speaking in tongues are necessary for conversion. No. Have you ever spoken in tongues? No. To which Jared turned back to the guy. Remember, they're about to get engaged and get married. And said, so you don't believe she's saved. I thought this would for sure be the point where he bails. She's cute. He thinks she's cute. 
she wants to spend the rest of her life with him. I've watched guys sell them their soul out to the devil for far less. Being honest, I'm not trying to take a shot at anybody. If I had a nickel for every time a guy said she's hot and I said so's hell, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> so I thought for sure he was going to bail. So he, Jared looked at her and said, or looked at him and said, so you believe that she's not saved? And he said, she's not saved. Like every fiber in my body was focused on keeping my jaw up and myself in my seat. I was floored. She could not compose herself as well as I did. She was in shock. And I, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I, I'm just going to be really honest with you. While that was a shocking moment to be a part of, in a weird roundabout way, I could have been more proud of that guy in that moment if I had tried. Because here's a guy who's about ready to get married. And he's going to stick to his theological convictions. And some of us, if the Taco Bell guy takes too long to get our chalupa to us, are ready to sell our own souls down the river and become Catholic to get it 30 seconds faster. And you snicker and you laugh, but you know I'm right. Your theological moorings aren't there. <laughs> Even Harper agrees. <laughs> Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's worth noting that the apostles made it evidently clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For God's glory alone and according to scripture alone. These are commonly referred to as the five solas of the Christian Reformation. In fact, the event that sparks Christianity running to that particular truth happens tomorrow in 1531. On October 31st, 1531, Martin Luther nails his 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg and launches the Reformation into its existence. And so tomorrow when you wake up and you think about what you've heard tonight, it'd be worth thanking, taking a moment tomorrow to thank God that he uses men to this day to call out truth from error. And we believe in this principle. Christians believe in this principle. I'll give you a Latin word phrase that you can use tomorrow. Semper reformata, always reforming. And this idea is we're always trying to be accurate with what the scriptures say. So when we look at other groups, we're saying, what does the biblical text have to say about this? Furthermore, I think this is what's really interesting. If you're a note taker or if you want to just jot this down, even if you're not, not all first century Christians even spoke in tongues. This is evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 5. Paul says, I wish that all of you could speak in tongues. Which is odd if you read that particular section, but that's not what we're here for tonight. We're just simply saying, if you believe that tongues is an evident sign of conversion, then even the people that you esteem in the first century are not actually genuinely converted because they're not speaking in tongues. 
Furthermore, I would challenge most Oneness Pentecostals to go according to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which give us the guidelines for speaking in tongues, by the way. And they tell us how they're supposed to be in operation. So if you have friends that believe speaking in tongues is still in operation, not maybe necessarily for salvation, but they believe that they're a spiritual gift, I would challenge you to challenge them to see if what they're hearing on Sunday morning actually lines up with 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I'm willing to bet a cool Ulysses S. Grant that it's not. And I don't say that with anger or malice in my heart. I'm just saying, again, I'm cool with us doing things that are in the Bible if they happen according to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul tells us what those qualifications are. But he also says in that famous love chapter, if I'm doing all these things for my own boasting, my own showing off, my own spirituality, I'm as a clanking gong and crashing cymbals. In other words, I'm incredibly distracting and not helpful to anyone actually following Jesus Christ. Again, that's another sermon for another time. We've already got two now out of this one sermon, so I owe you two more sermons at least. I know some of you are like, great. The Bible is clear teaching, especially in the New Testament, and I would make the argument from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the consummate case is being made by the Bible that salvation is belief in Christ alone. Our Old Testament saints were looking to Christ. He's the promised Messiah of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 53, surely he will bear our sorrows and griefs and he will be beaten and he will be mocked and he will be scourged. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. The great theologian Shilin says, the Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed, the New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. But make no mistake, the entire testimony of Scripture is faith in Christ alone. People are like, no, that's not possible. Well, really? Because in Hebrews, they tell us that Abraham believed in faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. So all through the Old and New Testament, the Bible is making the claim for you to trust in Christ for your salvation. What are you trusting in to save you this morning? Yourself? Your ability to be good? A kind of weak-kneed, weak-ankled, sissified version of Jesus who just kind of loves everybody and never has any expectations of them? And then I would ask you further, right? Press you further. So you're like, no, I believe in the real Jesus, the one in the Bible. Okay, are you living like it, though? Do people have a discernible understanding that you are a Christ follower? Where you go? I, I get it, right? You're in the middle of Walmart. You're in the middle of Hy-Vee. You're in the middle of Aldi. You're in the middle of a convenience store. They don't know you're a Christ follower because you don't walk around wearing a sign that says, I'm a Christ follower. And if you do, please stop. I get it. But I'm talking about the people at work. Do they know you're a Christ follower? And not just because you're like, wear a Jesus t-shirt, like, meant to die. Like, stop doing that too. I'm talking about, do they know because your life oozes Jesus? Can't help it. Your friends, your co-workers, your classmates, everybody you come in contact with. 
I'm reminded of Alan Tomlinson, a longtime New Testament professor at Midwestern. To know Dr. Tomlinson, to spend any time with him at all, and I spent very little time with him, was to immediately feel in his presence that he walked with Jesus. You ever been around people like that? You ever get around them? And they just, they're like, they're not bleeding, but something's coming off them. They're, just, they're grace-driven. They, they're slow to speak. They, they, they exalt Jesus Christ. You, you're like, I don't, I don't know you, but I don't want to leave you because to be with you is to be like I'm with Christ. We do a whole series on the cults, and if we never challenge you to live more godly, then I don't know why we're doing it other than to go like, we know that those guys are wrong. We already knew they were wrong. Last thing. Savior, salvation, and then security. Three S's, right? John chapter 10. I don't know that you can ever do a cult. If you do a cult series where you don't constantly reference John, I don't know that you're doing it right. John's going to tell us more than anyone about who Jesus is. He says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those of you paying attention get that, okay? Oneness Pentecostals believe that your own personal holiness and godliness is what keeps you saved. You can lose it. But if you commit to doing these things, this is... Now, these are the four unifying characteristics and a fifth one thrown in for fun. Certain oneness Pentecostals believe more than this. Some just believe these. These are at least all agreed upon. So, as long as you've done everything that is required of salvation, right? Faith, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name only, and speaking in tongues. As long as you've done all of those things, then you are saved. But here's what keeps you saved. No smoking, no dancing, no drinking, no movie theaters. Like half of this group is done. I'm not just talking about those of you that smoke and drink. No dancing and no movie theaters. We're toast. And watching TV is looked down upon. Like three for five. If this was playing in the World Series, I'd be going to the Hall of Fame. I say that jokingly because, and I'm not trying to make light of it, I really am not, but there are a lot of Christians who would say these are also things that would confirm you not going to hell. In fact, I grew up in a movement that would pretty much be like, yeah, that sounds great. You could also add women not wearing pants to this would be awesome. I don't understand it, but that's what would be added. And there are oneness Pentecostals who believe that, and they also believe that women can't cut their hair, no makeup. Like, it just kind of varies group to group, but for the most part, no smoking, no drinking, no dancing, no movie theaters. If you do those four things, you've believed in Christ as Jesus. He is God, not the, the Trinity, but Jesus only. Repentance, faith, speaking tongues, baptism in Jesus' name only. You're good. Then as long as you don't smoke, drink, dance, or go to a movie theater, you will spend eternity with Christ. This is absolutely hogwash, would be the technical theological term for it. John 10, verse 
25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. This is a double-decker punch to oneness Pentecostal theology because here in this particular paragraph, John not only affirms the deity of Christ, he affirms the deity of the Father while simultaneously saying, anyone who trusts in Christ, who is part of his sheep, is in his hand and there's nothing you can do to take him out of his hand. You're in. Those who persevere to the end are those who truly know Christ. They're his Sheep, this doesn't mean you're going to go, this does not mean you will not go through periods of doubt, backsliding, that you will struggle with your walk with Christ. It doesn't mean any of those things when we say you'll persevere. What we mean when we say you'll persevere to the end is you're someone who continues to claim the name of Christ consistently throughout your entire life. There's been way too much death around here in the last week. Way too much. And I've walked through multiple visitations this past week. And I was struck because I was thinking about these things. People are laughing and joking and having a good time, they're crying tears of joy, and they're crying tears of sorrow, but there's people talking everywhere to each other. Nuts. Like, people die. You don't have to act like you're dead when you know where they are. But if the people whose funerals I went to this week, if the people whose visitations I went to this week, if their salvation is dependent on their ability not to smoke, not to drink, not to dance, not to go to movie theaters, we don't know. Students at BBC used to get in trouble. We'd play groups that would believe in this idea of losing your salvation. And I may or may not have participated in this, and I don't even know why I'm confessing it now. When you grow up in a Baptist background, you know, you learn a lot of kids' songs. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. And we would sit, <laughs> we would sit in the student section, and we would be getting blown out by a much more talented team that believed that you could lose your salvation. And we would sing, if you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. I don't know what to do. Now, will the Lord judge us? Probably. Will you judge me for that? Yes. But can I just, can you, to, to quote Pastor Eddie, can you just come up here real close and just understand this? The Heidelberg Catechism says the only hope that we have in life or death is that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And that he has secured my day of salvation. Meaning that putting my faith and trust in him is what secures me. Not my feelings, my emotions. I feel like a Christ follower. I don't feel like a Christ follower. 
I'm in and I'm out. The Bible tells us that those who are truly in Christ persevere. They go through times, right? They go through times. You cannot tell me that Peter is not struggling with this after he denies Christ three times. The cock crows and boom, he understands. I said there was nothing. I didn't even make it a couple hours. We go to the end of John and that wonderful scene with Peter where Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter is reconciled with Jesus. Friends, our Christianity needs to be robust enough that we have confidence in it, not just because of our feelings or our emotions or what we think might be going on, but we have a rock-solid commitment to the fact that I've trusted in Christ and I'm secure to the day he comes to get me or takes me home. Friends, it's a, a wrong way of looking at the scriptures to think that anyone can lose their salvation that is genuinely in Christ. And I would challenge anyone on this point, this particular point. And Jesus makes it evidently clear all through the gospels. You're in the Father's hands. And I would just press us tonight to understand the reality of this. What's your confidence for your salvation? Some of you may genuinely be in Christ, but your reaction to sin is to be like, I got to clean myself up. I got to be better. I got to do better. I can't do this no more. Like, I, and you start to freak out instead of running to the foot of the cross, repenting and being reconciled to Christ. It's almost Reformation Day, so we'll just end with this quote from Luther. All of the Christian life is repentance. And that initial repentance and putting my faith and trust in Christ, when I sin, I run to Christ. And then I would just challenge you to do this. Tonight, on your way home from here, those of you that have Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube or however you listen to your music, on your way home, listen to this song. He will hold me fast. If you've never sung it before, listen to it. Listen to the words. Let it resonate in your heart that your salvation is not dependent on your ability to keep it. Because if it was, you would lose it immediately. It would already be gone. But it's held by an all-sufficient Savior, the second person of the Godhead, who's existed from eternity past and will exist to eternity future, in the person of God. And he's securing you until the day of redemption. What is my only hope in life and death? To paraphrase the Heidelberg Catechism. It's that Jesus is who he said he was and is. 